Good morning and welcome to you all in the church here, and uh, good morning to all of you who are listening to us uh, on the streaming uh, of the service. Uh, first of all, for those of you who are here, uh, my apologies that the heating is uh, um, turned off. Um, well, not turned off, it's uh, broken down, but uh, um, we'll, we'll try and fix that uh, in time for the uh, um, praise night t- tonight, um, but uh, my apologies for that. Um, regarding our service this morning, Duncan will be continuing our preaching series from Ecclesiastes with the title of When Fools Reign, where we'll be considering what the book has to teach us about wisdom and foolishness and the very different lives that they produce. Good morning. Reading this morning from Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, from verse 13. To chapter 10, verse 20. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offences to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favour, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he doesn't know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, 
for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, let me also welcome you today, and uh, especially if we haven't met before. My name is Duncan. I serve as pastor here, and it's a real delight to welcome you to join with us today. And you will find it helpful to have Ecclesiastes 9 and 10 open in front of you. It is printed in the diary, um, just in case you don't have a Bible to hand, you can see it there. And really, how do we get a handle on a passage like this? It seems to take us in so many different directions. Um, and here's, here's my effort. Just because something can't do everything, it doesn't mean you have to give up on it entirely. Just because something can't do everything doesn't mean you have to give up on it entirely. For example, just because uh, your microwave doesn't have a grill function doesn't mean you have to throw it out, doesn't mean it won't get your porridge warm in the morning. Just because your watch is only waterproof up to a depth of 100 meters doesn't mean that you need to get rid of it, doesn't mean it won't tell the time, doesn't mean you can't wear it in the shower even. Just because you can't know everything doesn't mean you have to settle for knowing nothing at all. Just because you can't know everything, it doesn't mean you have to settle for knowing nothing at all. That is the gist of what this part of Ecclesiastes wants to get across to us. This is our twelfth study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, God willing, only two more to go. And if you've been with us, you may recall it's a book written some 3,000 years ago by someone who identifies himself as the preacher. It is his journal recording the things that he's observed in life, things that he's recorded because he's trying to make sense of what life is all about. All of his investigations have led him to include that life is short and life is quickly forgotten and there is nothing in our power to change that. We are creatures made to depend upon God. And so he says, embrace that reality. And instead of always trying to fight against it, well, receive the things God has given you as a gift. Enjoy them. Use them to glorify God and to bless your community. Part of accepting life's limitations is recognizing that human knowledge has its limits. There are things about the world that we can't understand. Why does life take those turns? What is God doing in the unpredictable events in the world? There are some things that we just cannot penetrate. But the, the caution that the preacher gives more than once in this book is to say, even though human wisdom has its limits… We need wisdom to navigate life. 
It is still far better to be wise than it is to be a fool. And he shows us that here in these verses by showing us how disastrous it is when fools reign. When fools reign. So he starts off with a story. This is from verse 13 of chapter 9. He tells us the tale of the wise but forgotten man. He uses this to show us that we are drawn more to a fool than we are to the wise. We are drawn more to a fool than we are to the wise. He tells us in verse 13 that he has seen a great example of wisdom, and he takes us to a small city, a city that is protected by walls, but a city that is threatened by a great king. It's a picture of a mismatch, small city, great king. The king besieges the city. In other words, he surrounds it. Nothing gets in, nothing gets out. And the king builds siege works to try and get up over the walls. These were really typically just big mounds of earth. They just keep adding mounds of earth to build a big ramp to get up and over the walls. And it's surely just a matter of time before the city falls. And sieges are often associated with long, drawn-out periods and associated with horrible things like starvation, infighting as resources run out. It's a disastrous fate for the people of that city. But here is the great example of wisdom. There's a poor man in the city, but a man who possesses great wisdom. And we're not told how, We're simply told that this poor man, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Perhaps he knew how to negotiate a peace with the invading king. Perhaps he had some military tactic that managed to rebuff the attack. We just don't know. All we know is that through this unexpected source of wisdom, the city was saved. Now, the guy is a hero, right? I mean, there should be a bridge named after him or something. But no, look what happens, verse 15. Yet, no one remembered that poor man. How could that be? Well, you see, he was a poor man. All he had was his wisdom. He had nothing that was was outwardly impressive about him. And so, in fact, he was soon forgotten. Even when the city owed its survival to this man, the people preferred to remember others. There is this tendency, says the preacher in verse 16, to despise the poor man's wisdom and to not hear his words. It's the sort of person that doesn't draw a crowd. It's the sort of person who isn't winning a popularity contest But the preacher is saying to us, don't be deceived. Wisdom is still better than might. To have wisdom is better than the outwardly impressive stuff. This poor wise man proved it. He rescued a whole city. So why is wisdom rejected like this? Why is foolishness embraced in its place? Well, the preacher gives us a few reasons. In verse 17, He says, well, one of the reasons is that wisdom is just often not loud enough for us. He says, the words of the wise heard in quiet 
are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. How many debates are won by the one who shouts loudest? It's not always the strongest argument that wins, but the one who can land the most memorable blow, who has the wittiest takedown of their opponent. Sometimes wisdom is just not loud enough for us. In addition to that, verse 18, we see that often wisdom isn't aggressive enough for us. He has to tell us wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much goods. So often weapons of war are much more appealing. They seem to more reliably get things done. And even in our world today, how underrated is the role of peacemaker? These really do help us to understand the danger of foolishness. The preacher is trying to get across to us that that foolishness has a disproportionate power when compared to wisdom. I mean, someone could spend 50 years building up a good reputation in their community, and yet one split-second foolish decision can undo it all to a degree that it could never be recovered again. This is the world that we live in today. A talented sportsman can have his career entirely undone because of something he posted on social media when he was a teenager. And you see it in so many other areas of life as well. It took decades to build Coventry Cathedral, but it took German bombers just one night to destroy it. And likewise, verse 18, one sinner destroys much good. And he carries that on into chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly, a little foolishness outweighs wisdom and honor. It takes a long time for good things to come, but it takes almost no time at all to undo it, to turn a beautiful fragrance into a noxious stink. So, taking these things together, it should alarm us, because we see as we reflect on this more and more that it's not just that we are easily drawn to foolish things, though He does tell us that, More and more we see actually this absence of wisdom resides in us, resides in me. This amazing disproportionate capacity for self-destruction, there it is in me. Even if I'm a decent person most of the time, these destructive foolishnesses, they're there. And you see them as well. That flash of temper that hasty decision made out of greed, that uncontrollable lust. We're being exposed to the real condition of the human heart here. Do you recognize yourself in those words? The Word of God tells us, and the preacher in Ecclesiastes would agree, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The psalmist would write that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And here is the heart of the thing. The wise life is the life lived in reverence and relationship with the living God. The foolish life is the one that 
lives as if there is no God. Well, the preacher isn't done. In fact, he particularly wants to show us how disastrous it is when a fool rises to a position of power and authority. Um, This is kind of littered throughout the verses that Liz read for us. Um, For example, chapter 9, verse 17, the shouting of a ruler among fools. Into chapter 10, verse 4, he, he speaks of the anger of the ruler, the error of the ruler, when folly is set in high places. Verse 16, woe to the land whose king is a child. He seems to be setting this this meditation on foolishness and wisdom in his mind in the context of just how destructive and disastrous it is when foolishness creeps into high places. And so he says to us, do not admire a fool, especially when they have power. Do not admire a fool, especially when they have power. And for us to see how disastrous it is when foolishness gets into power, he wants us to understand just the nature of what a fool is like. He does that first, and then he says, now think of this, getting into power. So let's look at these lessons he gives us in chapter 10 on what a fool is. Number one, a fool is far from the way of wisdom. Look at that in verses two and three. The wise man's heart is inclined to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. I should say straight up, this is not any statement on politics. It was typically in the time Ecclesiastes was written, it was typical to regard the right hand as the right way. It was the side of honor to view, and the the left hand viewed as the side of dishonor. You may know that the word sinister in our, our English word sinister is in fact the Latin word for the left hand side. The point is clear. Wherever the wise heart is inclined, it's inclined to the way of wisdom, wherever that is, the foolish heart is inclined to the opposite way. That means that everything the fool does is tainted by this bias to the left. So you see that in verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. He can't walk down the street without everyone knowing he's a fool, presumably because of the direction he's heading in, but even in the manner in which he does it. A fool is far from the way of wisdom. Second, the preacher says, a fool is naive in how he lives his life. Naive in how he lives and how he works. And this comes to the fore in some of those pictures that he paints for us in verses 8 through to 11. We could think that these are pictures of someone who's just clumsy, but that doesn't quite go far enough. These are pictures of someone who is careless, someone who sets about work oblivious to the dangers. So what were those pictures? The kind of person who digs a pit and manages to fall in it himself. The sort of person who knocks a hole in a wall, puts his hand in without checking for snakes. Someone who smashes up stones and splits logs, but doesn't think to wear any eye protection. The sort of person to whom it seems like a waste of time to stop chopping wood to sharpen your axe. 
And the preacher here says, of course, you can keep on swinging the axe, you can keep on chopping wood, but you need more effort and you need more time. But if you were wise, you would see that time sharpening is not time wasted. Uh, This is not the point of this passage, but there is an analogy here for the Christian life. Uh, When we're busy, can easily feel like taking time to read God's Word, taking time to pray, that these are things that are only going to slow down my day. Going to church is simply going to just squeeze my week too much. But in fact, to take time to sharpen the axe head is the wise thing to do. Instead, the fool just presses on. Anyway, a fool is naive in how he lives and works. Third, a fool does not know when to stop speaking. You see that in verses 12, 13, 14. I mean, he's not saying anything we don't know. Words matter. Words are important. How we make use of our words will really determine how we relate to those around us. And so he says, the words of a wise man can win him favor, verse 12. Or, words of a fool can consume him. The picture of the fool here is, is an escalating picture. Um, he escalates the number of words that he uses. You see that in verse 14, a fool multiplies his words, but also his words escalate in their severity. You see that in verse 13, the beginning of his words are foolishness and they grow into words of evil madness. How could we understand what he means by that? Well, you've seen this, haven't you? Silly joking can easily turn into barbed criticisms, can easily turn into bullying and harassment. What starts as complaining about how someone speaks or acts turns into seeking fault with that person, turns into hatred towards that person. What starts with seemingly innocent flirtation turns into an obsession, turns into adultery. This is what it's like. There is a time to stop talking. And there is always a time to guard our words. In the New Testament, James gives us this same warning. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Words from the mouth of a fool are destructive So when is it a good time to stop talking? Uh, Look at verse 14. The fool keeps talking even though no man knows what is to be. In other words, the fool talks about things he has no clue about, things he's got no knowledge of. 
And there is some wise advice. When we come to the limits of our knowledge, it's a time to stop talking. The fool keeps talking. The preacher's point here is only God knows what is to be. And as the preacher urged us back in chapter 5, when you draw near to God, let your words be few. Better to draw near to listen. One more lesson on a fool here. A fool has lost his bearings. A fool has lost his bearings. You see, the fool has not been able to take on board uh, the preacher's repeated lesson about finding grateful joy in his work. No, in verse 15, we're told that his toil only wearies him. And this is because he's lost his bearings. Uh, those two lines in verse 15 we perhaps struggle to see how they connect. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. It seems to be like saying, this guy's sense of direction is so far off, you couldn't trust him to find his way back home. That's the sort of thing he's saying. This, this guy, he, he couldn't even find his way back into town. Never mind navigate life wisely. He's a fool. He can only find weariness in his work. He doesn't know where he's going. And as we've seen already, even when he walks on the road, everyone can see he's a fool. No sense of what life is about. No sense of where life is going. Lost his bearings. Doesn't have this God-given framework in life. And all he has is weary toil. Now, that's quite, a, that's quite a fool picture. I mean, you have to pity the one who is far from the way of wisdom, who lives life naively, who doesn't know when to stop talking, and has no bearings to navigate life. But it's as if the preacher is saying, well, get all of that clear in your mind, and then just think, how much more disastrous? How much more disastrous when someone like this is elevated to a position of power. The preacher has some concerns about that. He tells us that it's, that sort of thing is contrary to the natural order of things. I mean, that's his point in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 10. He speaks about how he's seen this evil under the sun, an error proceeding from the ruler where folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. A fool in a high place, that's, that's not right. And when he speaks about the rich, he means more than, than just necessarily materially wealthy, but those who are rich in character. They are sitting in a low place. He says it's like having slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground as their slaves. Now, this isn't a, a commentary on slavery. It's simply a reflection on the natural order in the preacher's world around him. He says this is, this, is, this is to turn the natural order on its head, to put a fool in a place of power. And more than that, a foolish ruler is a curse for a nation. In verse 16, he uses the word woe, woe to you, O land, when your 
king is a child. And that's what's behind that word woe. It's, it's speaking of accursed. And when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. And you see what the feasting is all about. In verse 17, it's feasting to get drunk. In verse 19, it's for laughter, using wine and money as the great pursuit and solution to life's problems. No, a nation in such hands is headed for ruin. And he uses that picture in verse 18. You're just waiting for the roof to cave in. So what are we to make of all of this? I mean, in some ways, there's a lot of very practical stuff here. In the preacher's day, of course, there wasn't really much of a say on who your king was. Yeah, I suppose there still isn't today. You prayed that you got a wise one. Well, I suppose you got who you got. And Israel's history is uh, a long history of, of stories of fools who find themselves in high position men who didn't know God, men who had no regard for Him. And the repeated history of Israel is of the roof collapsing in time and time again. Today, of course, we live in a democracy. A certain responsibility has been entrusted to us to participate in the appointment of our leaders. Um, Do I say much more than just say, well, look at them. And I don't just mean those who are in power today. Look at the succession of them. Where is the wise? Where are those leaders of whom we could say they have their bearings? They could find their way back to town. Where are those who will fear the Lord and seek to honor Him? They are few and far between. Now, that is not to say that we uh, must only elect Christians to position of power. No, in God's common grace to us, we've been given capable men and women who can lead. But I suppose we must be willing to listen for the wise. The preacher has warned us, sometimes wisdom is just not loud enough for us. We prefer to listen to a shouting fool. Are we ready to listen to the wise one who speaks in the quiet, rather than simply jump on the bandwagon of the one who shouts from the rooftops? There's some practical guidance to be had here in navigating life. I mean, whoever you are, you have some responsibility If you're part of a church, you have responsibility for the other members of that family. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're an employer or an employee, you need wisdom. And so we all can learn, I suppose, from the fool in Ecclesiastes 10, learn to be realistic about life, about the dangers, learn from the possibility that uh, that could happen to me. Know when you've come to an end of your knowledge. Be prepared to admit it. Know when to be silent before God and before others. Get your bearings. How can you ever hope to find your way to the city without having the most basic framework in place 
that tells you where all the important landmarks are. And this is probably ultimately where this message of Ecclesiastes has to lead us. Yes, you, you can find wisdom for life in the world around you. There are many helpful resources that we could turn to, I'm sure. But the preacher would say, you cannot ever hope to find true wisdom without God. That most basic definition of a fool that the Bible gives is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. And here is where we start to get a little uncomfortable. Because what are the parts of your life and mine where we live as if there's no God? Where we are very happy to cast aside those bearings, those landmarks that help us get back to town. Because when we do that, we will not find the way of wisdom. But there is a way. There is a way. In the New Testament, there are a handful of places where Jesus' followers are described as those who follow the way. And it's a turn of phrase that takes us back to Jesus' own claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. And because he is all of those things, no one comes to the Father except through him. No other way to the Father but through the way, through Christ. The way of wisdom is a person. This is where the truly wise will find their bearings in Jesus Christ. And it's powerfully demonstrated to us in the death of Christ. The gospel writers record that when Jesus was on the cross, at the moment he exclaimed, it is finished, and he died, something happened in another part of Jerusalem. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the curtain was there to keep people out of the presence of God. It was a powerful proclamation that human beings are just too sinful. They're sinners. They cannot enter into the presence of God and live. And so this curtain was there to say, keep out. And yet when Jesus died, that barrier was taken away right at that moment, removed by God himself telling us that through his death on the cross, Jesus has opened up the way back to God, the way that sinners can enter when they come through Jesus Christ. And they can do that because on the cross, Jesus has died to take away their sins. And he's confirmed it by rising again from the dead. And even now, he calls everyone who will to come to him to find the way. 
He is the way of the wise. He is the way to God through Jesus Christ. And that way is still open today. Here is where true wisdom is found for navigating life for which we need so much wisdom. The preacher in this chapter of Ecclesiastes doesn't just tell us about foolishness. I want to close by pointing out verse 17 because it actually strikes a hopeful note. He writes, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time. As much as the preacher has to say about fools, he has hope that it's not only fools who rise to positions of power. In fact, it brings great happiness to a land, to a nation, to a people to have a good king, a wise king. And again, it is Jesus Christ who is the ultimate great fulfillment of this verse. He is the one who sits at the right hand of God, ruling over all things, waiting for the day when he will return to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And for all those who know him, they will find, we will find, that actually we only ever had a foretaste of true happiness. For then we will be with the Lord forever. It's on that day that the days when fools reigned will be a distant memory. And we will see Jesus, our King, the Son of God.